CRISPR. So, okay. <laughs> okay. It's going back to the 80s this week. Praise God. Summer's not over, although it kind of is. All right. It's always good to be with you. I want to talk to you tonight about two characters, both from the Old Testament, and both of these characters developed a deep and living and vital faith in God. And they developed such a confidence and such a positive attitude and mindset toward life and with God. It was amazing. That's what I want, don't you? Here's the thing, though. They did it in the midst of difficult and really challenging circumstances. Maybe that's the way it goes. Maybe that's the way that kind of faith gets developed. You know, and it wasn't easy for them either. You know, because, well, that kind of faith is never easy, really. And because the circumstances were really daunting. And it's just so easy, isn't it, to kind of be sucked into negativity? Isn't it? And all of a sudden, we're going along and something happens and, man, we're gripped by fear. And anxiety just comes upon us and we're almost paralyzed. Doesn't that happen to you guys? Okay, maybe am I just talking about myself? And, you know, when it comes to work or family or all of a sudden something, oh, I don't want that. I want what these characters had. And I want the kind of faith they had and the kind of confidence and positive attitude. So we're going to talk about these. They're actually both from the Old Testament. Uh, So let's start in 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, let's start there. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I'll start reading at verse 15. You'll you'll figure out who these characters are. I'm not going to tell you. Here we go. 2 Samuel 12, 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any, any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. And then turn over into the New Testament, James chapter 5, and we'll hear about the second character. Beginning at verse 17. 
Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And that's the word of the Lord. All right, let's, let's start with the James passage, okay? The one that we, that we just read. And these are the very final and last words of James in this letter that he's writing to a congregation of people. And in the letter, at the very end here, he references a prayer, right? A miraculously answered prayer that had happened hundreds of years prior to this. Let me, let me just explain the context. Elijah, of course, is a prophet in the Old Testament, and it's the job of the prophet to make sure that the people are honoring God and worshiping him properly. And so when the leaders don't honor God or when the people don't honor God or the priests don't honor God, it's the prophet who steps in and says, hey, you guys, Get back on the path. You need to clean up your act. You need to get in right relationship back with God. It's important that you do that. Now, during Elijah's life, there was a really bad streak of behavior in Israel. And it wasn't just with the people. It was, it was with the leaders and the kings. And so from one king to the next, to the next, to the next, things just got from bad to worse. In fact, there was a little phrase in the Old Testament that happens around the time of Elijah that says things got so bad that wickedness was considered a trivial thing. Wow, that's pretty bad. People just got accustomed to how corrupt it was and how violent the leaders were. And then when, when the people and everybody thought, Elijah thought that things couldn't get any worse... Along came the worst king of all. His name was Ahab. And he had this wife, right? Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, the dynamic duo of evil in the Old Testament. And what they did was they instituted Baal worship as the official religion in Israel. Now, now Baal was a pretty cool guy. I mean, Baal was kind of the god of Canaan and Baal was a rain god. Baal made it rain. And the Israelites were farmers. They're growing crops. And you know how dependent folks are like that on the rain and, and all of that. And so they thought, wow, if we want our crops to grow and we want our bank accounts to get full, and we want our businesses and our families to thrive, I guess we got to worship Baal. I guess Ahab and Jezebel are right. They're pretty smart after all. And then I don't need to go into much detail, but the worship of Baal involves some of the most disgusting and degrading, horrible things that you even can imagine. So Elijah the prophet doesn't know what to do. And he's been talking to the leaders and they won't listen to him. And he's been talking to the people and they won't listen to him. So he says, what will it take to bring the people to their knees? And he, and he couldn't think of anything and, until he says, you know what? Maybe some kind of a natural disaster. You know, maybe a famine. Maybe if there was a drought, 
You know, no rain. Let's hit Baal right where he hurts. No rain. And then there'll be no food, and the people will realize we're in a terrible mess here, and we can't solve this by ourselves. Maybe the people will go to their knees and turn back to God. Only problem is, he's wondering, how do you arrange for a drought to happen? You know, how do you get a drought done? So Elijah thinks, well, if God is God, and I bet he could do a drought, but he could influence the natural order and kind of shuffle the high-pressure systems and the low-pressure systems and make it so that there wouldn't be rain on the land. So Elijah says, here's what I have to come to terms with. Can God do this? Might God do this? Might he be responsive if I ask him to do it for the right reasons? You know, so that the people will fall to their knees and turn back to God. And Elijah thinks this whole thing over, and and he concludes, yeah, I believe that God can do the supernatural. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that if I pray, and if I pray earnestly, and for the right reasons, he would honor my request, because I'm hoping that it won't rain so that it will get to the people, and it will drive them to their knees and turn back to God. So by faith, can you imagine this prayer? Dear God, close up the heavens for a couple of years. I know you can. Close up the heavens. No rain. And he prays the prayer. And God responds. And there is not rain on the land for three and a half years. And you know what? It drives the people to their knees. And then after a little while, Elijah says, Okay, God, I think that's enough now. I I believe that you can now affect the meteorological systems and you can kind of bring the low-pressure systems back over the land and you can make it rain again. Dear God, may it now rain. And then it rains. And the crops grow and the businesses thrive. And the size of that miracle was such that it was passed on from fathers to sons to mothers to daughters for generations, all the way until it comes to James, who's writing this letter now in the first century. It was passed on for 800 years, and James references it here at the end of his book. And he's what he's saying to his congregation of people in this letter is he's saying, brothers and sisters, people, hear my final words in my letter. Don't ever underestimate the power of God. Don't you dare. He says, I've talked about a lot of things in my letter and so on, but now I'm closing it out, and here are my final words. You're marching off into an uncertain future, and there's going to be maybe some trouble for some of you. There's going to be some difficulty for you. There's going to be some loss or some failure along the way. Some pain might come into your life. And what James is saying is, listen, people, don't you get dark. Don't you fall into despair. Don't you get gripped by fear. Don't you let anxiety come upon you. Don't you get hopeless about this. You need to remember that our God is an awesome God. And he can do supernatural things. And you can pray. And sometimes he'll, he'll respond and hear those prayers and break into your life and change things. Don't underestimate the power of God. 
And very reminiscent of the words that Jesus used to use with his disciples and his followers. You remember, Jesus used to say to his followers, with humans, there's lots of things that are impossible. That's right. There are so many limitations with this human condition, right? We feel it all day long. But then Jesus adds, but with God, all things are possible. And friends, look, if you think about it, the whole underlying presupposition of the entire Christian faith is that God can do whatever he wants to do. God can do miracles. He's always been capable throughout history. He's capable now. He'll be capable into the future. And right in Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, it begins with this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a miracle. And then all throughout the Old Testament, you know, God speaks through burning bushes and he parts the sea and he drops manna from heaven and he causes upsets in battles. What's the message throughout the Old Testament? Well, all things are possible with our God. And then you come to the New Testament and the first thing you see is a star over a stable. And there's a little baby. It turns out to be a savior who can change and transform your life and eternity. And so what's the message of that? With God, all things are possible. And then you see the healings that Jesus does and the lives that he changes and the astonishing teaching that he brings. And the, when the early church begins with those disciples, there are signs and wonders that happened and people stand in awe of the power of God. And there are times, so many times, when the supernatural breaks into human experience and changes people's lives. Fundamental to the whole notion of the Christian faith is that with God, all things are possible. But listen carefully now, everybody. There is a huge difference in just accepting that as a theological premise and then proving it to be true in your own life. For example, what if I just said, okay, true or false, everybody, true or false. How many of you think that God can do all things? True or false? You'd all say true, right? Everybody would say true. I have no doubt. Okay, now let's change it up a little bit. Go a little deeper. How many of you are willing to pray risky prayers? How many of you are willing to take bold steps of faith in obedience to God and go way out on a limb and prove that the supernatural power of God in your life is real and it's there in your experience? Now, see, that separates the men from the boys, doesn't it? And that separates the tire kickers from the buyers. And you got to figure that out. And so I think tonight... And I've been thinking about this especially because I've sort of made a transition in my whole life and going into a new school year and church year and work year and family year, and maybe you're doing the same thing. But I'm thinking, how am I going to do this year? What kind of attitude do I want to have? What kind of mindset do I want to bring? What do I want to sustain me through all of the circumstances that may come this year? And I don't know any of them. I don't know, right? How do I want to do it? You know, for, oh, even for those of us who are Christians and love and follow God, see, you can be a naturalist and you can just kind of feel like things are the way that they are. That's just the way it is. And you can get fatalistic, you know, doom and gloom about the future. 
Or, if I would predicate my future on the belief that there is a supernatural God who loves me and who has drawn me into a relationship with him and he might break into my life and he might lead and guide and empower it in supernatural ways. I think that's the choice we kind of all have to make. How are we going to go into the future? What is going to be our guiding principle? Well, I want to share with you then an example of someone who makes the right choice about walking into that future, about having the right attitude, about developing the right mindset. Let me share his story, and I I think the example of his story can inspire us, I know it did me, to make those right choices in our lives, to develop a deep and living and vital, strong faith in a supernatural God with a confidence and a positive attitude that he can do all things. And I know reading about this and thinking about this again this week and the example there just encouraged me in that direction, and I hope it will you too. Of course, that character is David, King David. And you all know King David from the Old Testament. He's the guy who slew Goliath, right? Maybe there's more to it. He, got, he grew up. He was older. He became a warrior and a musician and a poet and a politician, and he had a huge love for God. Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But you also know that David made a terrible mistake at one point in his life. And he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. You know the story. And then he compounded his sin by murdering her husband and then taking Bathsheba as his wife. And then he has this child with her. And God disciplined David for the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. And one of the ways that he was disciplining David is that he was saying to David that this son that he just had, the son that he had with Bathsheba, that newborn baby was going to fall ill and die. And David knew it was because of his sin and what he did. And Scripture tells us then that David laid flat down on the floor on the ground of the palace. He didn't shave. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. He didn't change his clothes. He wept and prayed and fasted for seven days. And his aides, all of the government leaders, you know, they're gathering around him and they're wondering, what's going on with David? What's he doing? I mean, meanwhile, the child is getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and David just stays kind of flat down on the ground 24 hours a day. And then the child dies, right? And some of David's aides get together and they say, now, wait a minute. I mean, David's been in bad shape for seven days. And, you know, if we go in there now and tell him that the baby's gone, Scripture says that they worried that he might kill himself or do something terrible to himself out of sadness and guilt. Well, of course, they had to tell him sooner or later. So one of them goes in timidly and says, David, I got got to tell you, the baby's dead. He's dead, David. And David gets up, he showers, he puts on clean clothes, he asks for some food, he walks over to the temple, he kneels down and worships God, and he says to God, I still love you, God, I still trust you, you are my God. And he comes back and he starts going about his business, and he says, I got some work to do, I'm the king, let's get together, let's have a meeting. And one of them says, David, 
While the child was alive, you were on the floor in anguish with anxiety and despair. And then when you learned the child died, you cleaned yourself up and you went to the temple and worshipped and you went back to work. What gives? And here's David's response. And this is the phrase that I want you to remember. This is the phrase that struck me and I believe is going to be the thing that will give me that attitude and mindset for the living of this year and maybe it can change you and give it to you too. And I want to make this kind of a fundamental phrase in my life. David, responding to his aides, explaining his behavior, says, this is 2 Samuel 12, 22, if you're still looking, 12, 22, says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and prayed and wept because I said to myself, who knows? The Lord may be gracious. Who knows? The Lord might be gracious and let my child live. See, David knew that God had pronounced judgment on his child. David knew that God had kind of predicted what was going to happen as a result of his sin. But here's David flat on the ground saying, while there is still one breath left in the lungs of my child, I'm going to pray. And who knows? God may be gracious, and God might do a miracle, and get this, God might change his mind. God might change his mind. Who knows? But I've got to lean into hope, and I've got to lean into faith, and I've got to lean into the possibility that God's power will be brought to bear in this situation somehow. And then he said, but when the child died, then I realized it was time to move on. And he says in verse 23, the next verse, now the child is dead. Why should I continue to fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And so now the question is, you know, how are we going to approach life? How are we going to do this? You know, are you just going to be kind of a naturalist most of the time and kind of think about worst-case scenarios pertaining to your future and life and family? This text says, why don't you orient your mind toward a best-case scenario? Why don't you use the words that David used? I mean, who knows? God might be gracious. God might do something supernatural. Let's find out. No, we got to find out. All right, let's just take just a couple minutes tonight. That man, that's the story. There's David and, of course, you know, Elijah. Let's just apply this for a minute to our daily living. Okay, let me just throw out a few areas where this might come to bear for you and, and for me as we learn to build faith in a supernatural God. Let me start with this one. Church and ministry and our life here together. Boy, it is so easy to get negative about the church, isn't it? Don't look at me that way. Yes, it is. Oh, Lord, it's such an uphill battle. Oh, there's so few people. I don't know if we can do it. We'll try, but I don't know. Probably not going to work. But we'll invite them over and we'll see what happens. And, you know, we'll go to church and we'll... Isn't that, I mean, it, it seems like such an uphill battle, doesn't it? It seems like we are in such a minority and just going to be a failure. 
The disciples felt that way too after Jesus' death. Remember, they all got in the room and they're all sitting there kind of afraid and they don't know what to do. And oh man, Jesus is gone. This whole thing's going to tank. It's over. Remember, and then Jesus said, you guys wait in Jerusalem. You wait. And then so we go to the book of Acts. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, there are those disciples kind of huddled in the upper room along with a few other believers. You know how many followers of Jesus there are at the beginning of the book of Acts, right after the resurrection? How many followers of Jesus are there? 120. It says 120. Well, nice going, Jesus. You were here for three years, and you did all that preaching and all those miracles, and you got 120. So there's 120 of them, and they're praying. And then you read through the book of Acts. I dare you. Read through the book of Acts, and what do we find? The disciples are boldly preaching. They're getting flogged and beaten and threatened, and they're doing it with joy. And the miracles start to happen, and people come to faith, and churches are planted all over the world. How many followers of Jesus are there at the end of the book of Acts? Okay, you don't know because they're countless. There are thousands and thousands upon thousands of believers in Jesus. And where are they? All over the world. And all of this happened in 30 years without Twitter and Facebook and fax machines and email. It all happened in 30 years. Why? Because some people prayed because some people stepped out in bold faith, because some people thought God is a supernatural God and we're going to lean into hope and we're going to go with the best case scenario and we're going to follow that track. And it happened and it worked. And now it's our turn, right? And now it's our turn. And it's 2015. And now here we sit at the beginning of a church year. And I don't know what happens in your meetings and I don't know what happens in your discussions, but it's so easy to kind of get together and start spinning out worst-case scenarios, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure the men's Bible study is going to work this year. not sure we can get any material. Nobody wants to come. I I don't know. Maybe Justin's over there thinking, who's going to show up tonight? I got a bunch of 7th and 8th graders coming. Who's going to come? It's the first night. Maybe Pastor Tony is wondering, oh, boy. Are the people going to listen to me? Are we going to do this? Is ministry going to... I mean, and it's just so easy to get negative, right, and spin out worst-case scenarios. Well, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it in church, and I'm doing it in my ministry. I'm not going to waste one more second or ounce of energy on negativity about the church because God is saying, wait, wait, everybody. What What am I teaching you about the life of David? Who knows? God might be gracious. God might surprise us. God might be strong. God might do something supernatural. God is saying, I want to revive the church. And this is an operation that's going to succeed. I guarantee it with my life and resurrection. So why don't you lean into hope? And why don't you lean into faith? And why don't you take a step out into something in ministry that God's calling you to do? Now it's our turn. So when it comes to church and worship and ministry this year, we can sit home and spin out worst-case scenarios and make excuses. Or we can pray bold prayers and risky prayers and step out on limbs and follow a supernatural God. Who knows? Who knows? A bunch of young people might really become followers of Jesus this year. 
bunch of hungry people might get fed and see the grace and mercy of the Lord? I don't know. Who knows? But we're not going to find out if we don't do it. See? All right. This isn't just second area. This isn't just about big decisions in church and ministry and all that. This has to do with internal personal growth and character types of things. I don't know. Maybe you struggle with character things. Maybe with anger, being short-tempered, procrastination. I don't know. Whatever it may be. There's a thing that, you know, and, and you think and you go, well, I'm never going to change. This is just always the way it's going to be. You know, I'm, my spouse is always going to think of me this way, and my kids will always believe I'm this kind of person, and uh, it's not going to change. I, what's the use? What's the use? And then remember the words from David. Who knows? God might do something supernatural or gracious, and God might give you a new heart, but you've got to lean into faith, and you've got to think about transformation, because if you don't, you're going to wreck your family and your spouse and your kids and everything else. Go back to prayer. God, who knows? You might help me become a kind, gentle, tender-hearted person. You might change my character. You might make me a different person. Who knows? Some of you maybe need to go to another level in your spiritual life. You know, study, prayer, spiritual disciplines, solitude, reflection, confession, meditation. You know, and maybe you're kind of like a speed and action person. And you're thinking, that's not me. Now, I'm not going to sit in some chair and meditate. I'm not doing that. Well, spiritual life depends on whether or not you will establish some of these valuable disciplines in your life. Slow your life down if you have to. And meet with God deeply and confess deeply and worship deeply and develop a love for God. Take the first step in these things. Make a plan. Who knows? Stick with it. God might help you in this. God might increase your self-discipline. God might meet you where you are and grow you up and sustain your spiritual life. Okay, another area. Maybe when life is hard and difficult. And I've had disappointments in life, and you have too, and we all have, right? And I've wanted to bail on God a few times. (laughs) Maybe more than a few. And I was frustrated with God's unresponsiveness, even kind of mad at him. When you get to that place in your life, and I'm reminding myself again too, remember those two words. Who knows? Who knows? A week from now, your prayer might get answered. A month from now, God might intervene and solve the problem that's been causing you so much anxiety. Who knows? I might relieve the pressure. God might three months from now. But keep leaning in the faith and don't default to the worst case scenario and the hopeless side of things. Because once you start living that way, it is just an endless spiral down. So hang in. Who knows? Finally, this kind of affects the way that I share my faith too. You know, Christianity and to walk with God, you know, through life is just the greatest way to live. It just, it, it is. It's 
been proven. It's changed so many lives. And I'm trying to be a bit more intentional about sharing my faith and living that life and having an intentional impact on people and helping people come to God because so many people need it, because so many people are broken. And I've got students who sit in my classroom and I cannot assume that they're Christians anymore. I can't. And part of my job, I think, in a little bit of a way, is the job of evangelism in teaching. I know. And that's what I'm trying to be more intentional about. But sometimes I come across hard cases. Don't you? And you talk about faith, and you talk about the church, and you try to share the love of Christ, and you know, the response is just stop. You know, be quiet. Or they laugh, or they ridicule, or they don't say anything. And you know, there are just some people where I have said, you know what? I'm ready to take you off my list. I'm just going to take you off my list and give up. That's it. You're done. Pretty hard, though, to give up when you think of the two words from David. Who knows? See, because it might be real personal. Because that person might be a child, son or daughter, might be a parent, might be a friend or a colleague. See, a week from now, God might answer your prayer and melt that sin-hardened heart. Who knows? Three months from now, that person might accept your invitation and the barriers will come down and that person will meet God in Christ and be changed. When God acts, it just underscores that verse. Who knows? And so we got to lean in. So what about you? How are you going to walk into your future? You know, this year... How are you going to go to work tomorrow morning? How are you going to do your family? How are you going to do church? How are you going to grow personally? You know, some of you here, I don't, well, I think most of you here have made a commitment, right, to God in some way. You have. But you're kind of, kind of private about your faith, kind of in, maybe even closet Christians. You bear the name of Christ, but you don't really... You know, I have the courage to step up and live for Christ when the ways that he's nudging you to. And you don't take the stands that he wants you to take. You don't show maybe the boldness and the strength and the love that that you think you ought to. You're afraid of maybe what other people will think. Well, come on. (laughs) Come on. Scripture also says, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro to find someone whose heart is fully his, and he wants to strongly support that person. And so maybe it's time to get out of the safety zone and take a step of faith and go God's way. Because who knows? God might be unbelievably gracious when he sees you step out in faith. And then James's final words are these. He says, and if someone among you strays and one of you turns him back, know that you will save his soul from death and you will cover a multitude of sins. You know what James is saying here? He's saying, if you go out and if you do nothing else that I've told you to do, but you go out and you just find a wayward, isolated, alienated, lonely, broken person somewhere and you take him by the hand and you lead him to God and you show him Christ. It's the single most important thing you can do 
And you all have little ways to do that in your job, in your daily life, with the people you run into. That's what the church is about. That's what the gospel represents. Our stepping out in faith and then God being so gracious to our commitment that he will use this place and he will use us in wonderful ways. Your next prayer, your next act of mercy might be the thing that connects a person to God. We need to live with faith that God can do all things. And really, who would want to live any other way? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I, I can't imagine how dark this world would be if, if you weren't in control of it. If you weren't around to periodically intervene in history and do something supernatural and gracious and powerful. And so we thank you for that. And you, you have done that already in our midst and in our families and with our work. Help us, Lord, now to be people of faith, to be people of vision. Help us to be a church that looks toward the future, believing that the best days are yet to come that more people's lives will be transformed through the ministry of our lives by the power of your Spirit. So Lord, bless us all to that end together. We pray it confidently, positively, expectantly, in the name of Jesus. Amen.